Eric, thank you. And like a good, hearty good morning out of you guys. Well, it's good to be back with you. And um, uh, I've been in anticipation of this Christmas series for some time. When I was a teenager, my pastor preached a sermon, which I still remember today. And he gave this example. And he he basically said, at the end of the day, he goes, you're all going to die. And I was like, well, thank you, pastor. That was great. And for why? I know I'm going to die at one point. He goes, but you're all going to die at one point. And he said, and if they, you only had, your family only had enough money to write one word on your tombstone, not even your name, what word would that be? What word would best define you? And, and it's a difficult question. I, I, I just want you to think about, what's the first word that pops into your mind? And in fact, here's what I want to do. I actually want to take just 10, 15, 20 seconds, turn with your neighbor Tell them the one word that pops in your mind, or at least that you would want to have on your tombstone. What's the one word? What's the one word? All right, that's, that's long enough now. Now, all right, I want to hear, are there any words... That, that you guys think, like, okay, this was better than others. I have to do this or else I can't see your faces. What are, what are the words? What, somebody give me a word. Gee, what, all right, you get, all gave me a bunch of words at the same time. I heard love, so you don't need to repeat that one. What else? Gee, they're like, hey, Zeus died here? I, you know, <laughs> joking. What, what else? Yeah, I'm sorry? Friend. Forgiven. Thank you. That's three. Thank you, Jesus. That's three words, Elmo. I said one word. You don't have enough money for three. It's just one. <laughs> I'm sorry? Blessed. Forgiveness. Some good words. Those are some good words. But here's what my pastor said, and I just it just hit me, and I went, oh, yeah, that's what I want, too. And he said, if I had all, just, just one word I could put on my tombstone, what I want my, my life to be all the way going through, what I hope my family says about me after I die, I hope the word that they use is integrity. That my life, that what I think, what I say I believe, I live out in my actions. That, that, that when I say I'm going to do something, I do it. That, that my yeses are yes and my noes are, are no. I, I hope that it, if... If, is that when I die, my family would say, your words and your actions align. And I thought, wow, that's me too. And so now it's a sermon that I give on occasion, and not just him. But if you were to have one word that would go on your tombstone, that would define your life, what would that be? Integrity. Each of you have influence in our world. Each of you have influence in, in, it might be your families, it it might be your workplaces, it might be here at church, it it, it might be, you know, with your kids, each of you have a level of influence. Your level might be different than the next person, but each of you have a level of influence where you're at. Great pastor and leader named John Maxwell says, leadership is influence. Some of you here are thinking, well, I'm not a leader, but if you have influence and you have something called leadership. 
And your influence is really, really important that there's integrity in that influence. And so this week, I was... Um, I want you to keep that thought in your, in your brain while I tell you a little bit about this last week. This last week, I wrote a sermon on Wednesday called Long Expected Jesus. It was good. I mean, you guys would have like, oh, Pastor Dave, that was the best sermon ever. You would have, you would have said that had I been giving it right now. I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, I wrote it, and I thought, oh, this is going to be good. I'm excited for this. And there is something else stirring in my soul, and so that on Thursday morning, I went because what I do is Thursday, I've set a deadline for myself. Thursday, 1 or 2 o'clock, all notes go into Aniko. That way she could print bulletins, get everything done, taken care of. And on Friday, I could just not be stressed. The sermon's done. And I thought, I'm ahead of the game. I've studied for this sermon for a few weeks. It's done. Thursday morning, I go sit down and finish writing, and I just wrote something completely different. <laughs> it's still a Christmas series. It's still a Christmas message, but I just wrote something completely and it was just the, a different message that God had laid on my soul. And so if this is a little bit unpolished, I'm sorry. Um, maybe afterwards you tell me, I wish I would have given the Wednesday sermon. <laughs> but this is the Thursday sermon. Um, and each sermon uh, kind of resembles a whole pile of work and study. And so at one point, I'll give you that other one. But this is uh, rewritten a little bit for today. This, in the past weeks, we've seen a number of names in the media. People who have influence. People who we thought had integrity. People who we thought where we looked up to. People who had some sort of moral aura, even though we didn't know whether or not they were moral. And, and, I, and I almost say, I, I wouldn't put this name, this list out there unless it hadn't been already in the news a thousand times. So it's in the news a thousand times. You have names like Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, Louis C.K., Kevin Spacey, Al Franken, Roy Moore, Charlie Rose, Dustin Hoffman, Bill O'Reilly, John Lasseter from Pixar. And the list continues and continues and continues. And, and, and I just want to say, we don't know. If some of these people have said, yeah, it's true. Some of these people are just allegations. So I don't want to prejudge any people if it's just allegations and it's not true. But the, the name on the list that really got to me was a guy named Garrison Keillor. Anybody know who Garrison Keillor is? Oh, man. Well, so that one's just allegations. He put his hand on a woman's back uh, during, um, during a time when she was grieving. And uh, he touched her bare skin and quickly put his hand away and apologized. But now he's, he's being... Um, sued for all this. Now, he could, I don't know, I don't know his private life, I'm not in his private life, I have no idea, but he's also a bit of a writing genius, and so I love him for, for that, the, the jokes, the, the satire, the, just the writer stuff, and some of this stuff just, it just hit me this week. You know, for whatever reason, on Wednesday it didn't, and then I'm just listening to the news and just, man, the integrity of a person's life really, really matters. It really matters. When I was a kid, we went to a church where the pastor um, thought it was good to have more than one wife. Uh, <laughs> uh, decided that his wife wasn't good enough and decided to figure out something else. We walked away from that church. And my parents said, we could be moral on our own. And, and, and when I was a kid, I, I just had a bad taste in my mouth about the church because this is the way a Christian lived. They didn't have integrity. And we walked away. And we didn't go back for years. In fact, it took my brother and I going back to church in our teenage years, and for my parents to even go back to church. It was a 
rough ride for us. And so I'm thinking of this series, and I, I just wrote this on Wednesday, of this whole long-expected Jesus, and, and, and I was thinking about this all the way through the Old Testament. You hear the prophets over and over and over again talking about how horrible, how wicked, how you name it. They're not following God's law. They, there's no integrity. And they were waiting and anticipating for the day their Savior would come. That's become known the season of Advent, which we're in now. And, and they said, we know that when the Savior comes, things are going to be different. We, we know that life is going to be different. And, and, and then even now, in our, in our New Testament world, it, we're awaiting the day. In fact, Acts 1, 9 through 11, it says this. This is Jesus. says, after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. This is Jesus ascending to the Father. They were looking intently up to the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken um, from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go to heaven. So we're almost, I just felt this great um, affinity with the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets who said things just aren't right. And until God comes, his justice just isn't reigning. And we need God's justice. We need his righteousness. This sort of thing can't stand. And the other thing that struck me about all of these allegations is this. It seems to me that in our world of the Bible losing its authority publicly, it has not lost any authority in reality, but publicly, it's lost authority. The church has lost authority, not in reality, but in public life. Because of different scandals from the church in the past, whether it's the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, whatever, it, it, we, we sort of lost authority to speak into culture in a moral way and for us to be listened to. And when we've done that, we looked to people that were newscasters. Why? Because they're reporting the truth. The events of what just happened. And we've gone to them for moral authority. So, so this list of names, it becomes so devastating because we went, man, we thought they had the truth. We thought that they were guys, ladies. We, we thought they were good people. What happened? And so again, in our world, we, we cry out that justice just doesn't seem like it's here. Righteousness, where did it go? And, and, and so as, as I look into this, to this day, one of the things I thought of is, I just really want to see the church reclaim its integrity. Not that it's really lost it, but in the eyes of the world it has. In the eyes of the world, we might be on the wrong side of some issues. But I want to see us reclaim that integrity and that authority over morality that we have so enjoyed for years and years and years. Because when you look to the rest of the world, no one else is concerning themselves with morality. There was morality clauses in all these people's contracts. That's one of the reasons why they're so quickly easily fired. But do we have morality clauses on our life? Do we stand here and say, I'm a great representative of Jesus Christ in every, in every aspect of my life? I'm a, representative, I'm a representative of Jesus Christ. I show his morality. So this always brings me back to Romans 8, 19. Some of you are probably just shocked. 
For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Again, the world cries out. There's no justice. There's no morality. Where did it go? And I want to tell you, we've had it this whole time. We've had it this whole time. And it could be birthed in your life. So the question that I have for you in the beginning of this Christmas series is, is Jesus being born in you? We're, we're waiting for the day that, that, that he's born and Christmas Day. And we're waiting as Christians for the day that he comes back. There's this sort of now and not yet flavor about the Bible where, where, where we could have Jesus reigning in our lives now, but, but it's almost like not yet where he reigns over everything because that's when he comes back. But the question is, is Jesus being born in you? Or do you have more integrity now than, than you did before? Do you have more peace, patience, hope, joy than you did before? Are you showing this off? Are you telling others about this Jesus, about your source of morality? Because the world's upside down on its morality. Is Jesus being born in you? Each of these positions, these people had positions of power. And power can be a ghastly thing. At first it seems honoring. At first it seems wonderful. Having power, people jump at your whim. They listen to your emails. They respond to you. This year, um, I didn't really tell you about this because I didn't want it to think that it would affect my work at the church, that I'm going anywhere, which I'm not. That question's settled. But I I was asked to, to, to help in a leadership position on our district. And they said, would you, would you step in as the assistant district superintendent? And I said, sure, I'll do that. And it's, it's really just about helping people get ordained. It's, it's not about like, you know, it's like not like a president, vice president thing. It's really just helping people with their theology, getting them ordained, stuff I'm already doing. And, and in that, I've found that when I send an email now to somebody who I, you know, would send an email to before, they respond right away. I was like, ooh, this could get addicting. I like that. In fact, there's this one uh, office back in Indiana, and we're trying to find something out about this guy and his grades and all that stuff. And he told me, he called me, he said, I've been emailing him for weeks. I haven't heard back. I emailed them, and within 25 minutes, I got a reply back with all of my answers. And I was like, huh, I'm wielding some power here. Uh, Somebody responded to my emails. And I bet you that if, I know, right? Yeah, there used to be amens. That was just, oh boy. <laughs> For the first time in your life when you have power, someone listens to you. They serve you. They want to please you. And I wouldn't be surprised that if neuroscientists found out that there's some sort of pleasure endorphin release in your brain that when people have power, each of you have some sort of power. It might not be a CEO of a company. Maybe it is. It might not be anything huge or, or, or maybe it's something small, but each of us have some sort of semblance of earthly power. And this will get to Christmas, trust me. But the first thing that I thought of during all these times is a verse, is a story, an account out of Second Samuel 11. A man who had tremendous power. Tremendous influence. Tremendous just things going for him. So if you've got a Bible, flip it open to 2 Samuel 11 with me. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands. We have ushers that will bring those to you and pass those out. You could keep it if you don't have one. And if you really are just like, I'm not opening my Bible, Pastor Dave, 
It'll be up on the screen. The screen is for those of you lazy. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Who don't want to open your Bibles. Now I hear Bible flipping. There we go. Spring, the time when kings go off to war, David sent out Joab with his king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Ramah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent a message to get, uh, to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent his word to Joab and sent, sent me to Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent, sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come home from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in Israel. My commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house, eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Man. Doesn't that sound more relevant today than it did maybe a few months ago? The Bible says that for some reason there was a time in which kings went off the war. We know that's because it's spring, everything is thawing, it's cooler, and, and there's more food available, and, and, and they can actually sustain their supply lines, they can sustain an army. And it says kings went off the war. Where was David? He was back in his palace. He already was in the wrong place. He saw his friend Uriah's wife, and I say his friend. That Uriah and Bathsheba were not random people to David. David knew exactly who they were. In fact, in the book of Chronicles, it talks about um, David's mighty men that were with him as he's fleeing Saul earlier in his life. He's got to run for his life and flee the previous king. And it talks about these 300 mighty men, and it lists some of the mightiest men, and among them are Uriah the Hittite. David knew who these people were. It wasn't just, whoops. He knew who they were. He saw his friend's wife bathing on the roof, and he slept with her. The Bible doesn't record whether or not she protested, whether or not she said no. But if you understand Bronze Age times and the authority of a king, there's really nothing you can say to a king other than yes, sir. So we don't know whether or not so at, at best, it was inappropriate sexual behavior, a word that we used. And at its worst, again, we don't know, so I hate to judge David too harshly on this, but at its worst, it's rape. So we don't really know what it was, and the reality is this is that we won't really know. But David would have made the same list. So David had some sexual improprieties, and, and, and when he did, he, he covered it up with the murder of his 
friend. And, and he, he covered this up. He took Bathsheba as a wife to cover up the pregnancy. And, and the next chapter, a prophet named Nathan comes to David. And, and he comes to him and he talks to him and he gives him this parable about, about this lamb and this man kills the lamb and all this stuff. And David goes, that is a horrible thing. And Nathan says to him, you are that man. You are the one that screwed up. And he even says this, 2 Samuel 12, 12. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad is daylight before Israel. It's God telling David that I'm, I'm going to expose you. I'm going to expose what you've done. God has an interesting way of exposing sin. In just the very next chapter, David's son Amman, Amman showed that the apple didn't far fall from the tree. He fell in love with his half-sister. And when she wouldn't come to bed with him, the Bible says that he raped her. The apple didn't fall far from the tree. Absalom murdered on. Power can be a ghastly thing. Becoming accustomed to getting your own way can have a deep darkness about it. And I think it's important that as Christians, we become the sort of people who could handle the influence we have and the power that God wants to give us. That all starts with Jesus being born in your life. I mean, unless the world changes overnight, there's always going to be positions of power. There's always going to be earthly positions of influence. And, and you people will always be thrusted into those. Because when you lead with integrity in the small things, God honors that. And, and, and you'll start to have to lead with integrity in the large things. But as we've seen over and over and over again from a list of politicians, newscasters, and celebrities, and all that stuff, they might have led with integrity at one point, but when they got to that position of power, when people started responding to their emails, when people started listening to every word they said, it started to get abused. So the question, that the name of this sermon title is... It, is the best gift. And it's kind of a play because a lot of pastors write the, the best gift ever for Christmas, Jesus. And, and, and so it's kind of a play that sermon title that's been around for a hundred years. And what I mean is the, I think the best gift is Jesus in you to the world. It's you giving Jesus to the world. It's you giving Jesus through your integrity, through doing what you say you're going to do. Through not abusing what God has given you, not abusing that power through honoring and, and, and treating people with respect. And I think first you need to answer and settle a deep question within your own soul, which only you can settle, and that is, am I worthy of praise and adoration? See, in positions of influence and power, I think what happens is you begin to say, yeah, I deserve this. Yeah, I, yeah you should do that for me. Yeah, I think I deserve this. You begin to say that, and, and you begin to, to feel like you deserve so much when the Bible says everything you have is a gift and is undeserved because of God's grace. When life becomes about you, you are immediately set up for moral failure. I'm going to say that one more time because it's important. When your life becomes all about you, you are immediately setting yourself up for moral failure. Because your wants and your desires are no longer yielded to the Lord, and life becomes about satisfying you. So if you're here and that's you today, I, I just want to invite the, you to open up your heart and say, I want you to be born in me.
The reason for me why this is the most central issue is that we live in such a narcissistic culture that has no problem worshiping itself and putting themselves on a pedestal that, that, that we just get this sort of power and influence thing happening all the time in our lives, whether it's through social media or, or, or work or whatever that might be. There was this, moral, there was this influence question that came up with Jesus. In, in fact, the mother of James and John, the, the mother of the sons of Zedebee, came to Jesus. And they said, Jesus, you know, I want my kids to sit at hand. I think they're pretty important people, and I want them to sit at your right and left hand. What she was saying is, I want one to be your Secretary of State, and I want one to be your Secretary of Defense, and I want you, them to have power. Jesus, give them power. And Jesus kind of responded in this, the most fun way possible. He says, I know that you could lord over people, but can you serve? Matthew 20 Verses 25 through 28, this is Jesus' reply. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers and Gentiles lord over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for, for many. Jesus said, lording over people is the default of men. In fact, he said, that's the way the Gentiles work. They lord over people, but not so with you. I'm calling you to a new brand of leadership, which is called service. Serving is leader, leadership. He redefined it. In fact, if, if you've got your bulletin, I've got some fill in the blanks. And, and I'm just going to go through these quickly because I'm just realizing how fast I'm running out of time. But I've got so much influence now that we sh- I should just be able to go hours over. And you guys should be excited for that, right? I'm joking. <laughs> So Jesus says, I know you can lord, but can you lead? I know you can lord, but can you lead? Maybe you need to hear that question today. I know you can lord over people. I know you can tell people what to do, but can you lead? Jesus defines leadership as serving. That's the next filling. Jesus defines leadership as serving. Now, it's important to show this, too. If you're a person who has gained some sort of influence, it's probably because you've been successful with something. And success is a dangerous animal. Success is such a dangerous animal because after every season of success, I'm convinced you need to ask yourselves the question, can I still serve? In fact, that's going to be up on the screen too. Can I still serve? Every season of success will test that question. Every season of success will test that. When God... um, or David's son, King Solomon, is a great example of this. King Solomon goes up, he's a king. God basically says, ask for anything, I'll give it to you. Instead of, of thinking of riches and power and fame, he says, I just want wisdom and how to deal with my people, God. I just want that wisdom. And, and because of the humble request, because uh, he didn't ask for himself but for his people, God was freed up to give him more than he asked. And he gave him so much wisdom and in 1 Kings 6, Solomon builds a house for the Lord. There's majesty, there's glory. It's a huge success. People from all over come to the dedication. It is massive. And in 1 Kings 11, Solomon had many foreign wives and was building high places to their God. Something changed. It was success. 
Every season of success or failure will test the question, can you still serve? Success is whatever it means to you, by the way. When your, leaders, when you, you, your leadership in your position in life reaches a measure of success, you're at risk of lording and not serving. When your career reaches a measure of success, you're at risk of lording and not leading. When your relationships reach a measure of success, you're at risk of lording and not serving. When you financially reach a measure of success, you are at risk of lording and not serving with your finances. Every season of success reminds me that serving is something that you need to requalify for. In fact, that's a blank up there. Serving is something that you have to requalify for after every single season of success. I have to ask myself this. 34.8, that's why I had Gabby read it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Only God I know that when I come up here, my deepest desire is for you to taste and see that he is good. Not that I've got some fancy words for you. And, and that's the deepest thing for me, is do I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good? Or do I want you to taste and see that I'm good? Anytime that shifts, you're in trouble. And in fact, I also made that a fill in the blank too. So it says, only you know if you want others to taste and see that the Lord is good or that if you are good. And over and over and over again, over and over again in Scripture, God says stuff like, your sin's going to be found out. Why are you pretending you're going to be put on display. Your sin's going to be found out. You're going to be exposed. So, so hide. We have this amazing opportunity, I'm convinced. Our world rejects God, but it also is rejecting sin right now, which is kind of a cool thing. Our world rejects God, but it also is like, oh no, this sexual impropriety stuff, that's bad too. We've got this golden opportunity. To, to put on display the integrity of Jesus in your lives. So at the beginning of this Advent season, I just want to ask you, is Jesus born in you? Is Jesus in your leadership? Is Jesus in your influence? Is Jesus in your workplace? Is Jesus in your finances? Is Jesus in your marriage? Is Jesus in your relationship with your kids? Is he showing up everywhere in your life? This morning, we're celebrating communion. And I want to take a minute and just invite you to a simple prayer. Maybe for you, it, it's, Jesus, I want you to be born in me today. And today is the first time you've ever said that. Or, or maybe it's been a while. Maybe you're here and you're like, you know what? This integrity thing that Pastor Dave's talking about, yeah, sometimes I'm not so good at that. And, and you know what? Maybe I've walked away a little bit and and, and so, Lord, I need you to do a work in me. So maybe you're here today, and, and maybe one of you is just like, yeah, you know what, Lord, I want you to be born in my life today. And maybe some of you say, you know what, Lord, I need you to do a work on my integrity and help me out with all this. Because at the end of the day, when I die, I want that word integrity inscripted on my headstone. I, I want to be an integrous person, to do what I say I'm going to do, to live with you in my life. So as we celebrate communion today, one of those maybe is your prayer. Lord, I, I, 
I'm not only do I take these elements, but I, but I also want you to be in there too. I want that to translate into my physical life and what I do. So I'm going to ask the band to come forward and the ushers to come forward. And during this next song, I just want to invite you to, to, to take it and to hold it. And, and I just want to invite you to, to just pray over that in your life. And, and what I want to invite you to do in all reality is, um, is pray one of those two things. Lord Jesus, please be born in my life today. Or maybe it's, Lord Jesus, I, I need to be reborn in my life today. Help me to have the integrity I used to have. Help me to have the life that you want me to have, the influence you want me to have. So at the end of this song, we'll take this together. So please take and then we will take these together at the end of the song. Ushers, please come forward.